This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 310 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show NYPD officer Frank. Now, Frank is not only a policeman in New York, but he's also the man behind Reps for Responders, which is a gym he opened to give a space for positive outlet and sense of community for first responders and military in his area. So Frank is very candid about his own battles, his journey through alcoholism, and obviously now he's in an incredible place and wanting to give back to the men and women he serves with. So a fantastic... In- <clears throat> So a fantastic interview. Before we get to that, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The more f- the more comments we get, the more five-star ratings we get, the more visible this podcast becomes to people looking for a project like this. And then understand this is a free library for you, the audience, to use, whether it's personally, whether it's in your department. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible episodes Each one of these men and women's stories are so powerful, and I know they need to be heard by ear holes all over planet Earth. So the more we share this project, the bigger it grows, the more lives we change. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Officer Frank. Enjoy. All right, Frank, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. 
Hey, James, I uh, appreciate you uh, having me on the show. It's an honor and uh, I can't wait. Brilliant. So opening question, which is a great one on this particular situation. Where exactly are we finding you sitting today on planet Earth? Huh. Right now, I am in Rockland County, New York, about 45 minutes away from Bronx and, and Manhattan, um, sitting in my space uh, that currently was a gym uh, and can't have anyone in it. So I just come in here to uh, take notes and to send out emails and to uh, do things like what I'm doing with you. Beautiful. Well, we're going to obviously get into exactly the meaning of that gym and, and why you opened it. Um, starting from the very beginning, and I want to I want to get your early life, and then we'll even go further back than that. So, where were you born, and then what was your family dynamic like? What did your mom and dad do, and how many siblings? Okay, um, I was born again in Rockland County, New York. Uh, no traffic. You can get to Yankee Stadium in 38 minutes. That's it. There's no traffic, which is very rare. Um, my mom is an, a nurse for Nyack now Montefiore Hospital. She um, she is met, met my dad at their high school, the high school that I went to, and my dad worked for the Rockland Rockin County Highway Department. Uh, he's a volunteer firefighter still for 40 years. He's retired. I have one brother who is also a volunteer fireman. He just graduated from Mercy College last May. Um, my uncle was a FDNY firefighter. He retired because of 9-11. Both my great-grandparents were uh, New York City cops. My other grandfather was is a Purple Heart, <clears throat> two Purple Heart, um, he had two Purple Heart awards, and he was FDNY for about 10 years until he had to retire. Uh, so yeah, you can kind of see where, where it comes down from. Right. Now we're going to talk obviously about addiction. That's going to be one of the central points of this discussion. And I know that you mentioned that your dad had battled it. Is there anything that your dad's told you about his earlier life that contributed to his battle? Um, no, because again, I don't, he never knew he had a problem until he just got sober. Right. So when you're an addict, right, you don't know you have an issue until you have to quit something, right? Try to try to quit something and you'll know you're an addict. And he had his disease took over him so bad man, that uh, he had no idea because back when he was growing up in, in the 80s, he was born in what, 61. So, yeah, in, in the 80s, you know, it was normal to go out and party and because everyone was doing it. And of course, the science and the statistics were not what it is now. Uh, my grandfather, his father, my dad's name is Frank. My grandfather's name is Frank. So I guess Frank II, he uh he was in the Navy and uh, he ended up dying at 65. I think it was ShopRite. He had a heart attack at 65 years old, just uh, shopping, dropped dead in ShopRite, had no idea it was going to come. And uh, he was a big time drinker and a big time smoker. Yeah, this is interesting, you know, as we get in this conversation, th those cycles, you know, I hear it from so many guests and more often than not, it's, it's the guest that's on now that's the one that said is enough is enough. But especially the World War II generation and then on to the next generation because they came back from war dealing with whatever, you know, whatever it was they, they saw with war. And then obviously that's projected onto the next generation, their children. So it's kind of interesting hearing that two generational uh, journey to where you're at now. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because my great grandfather, he actually died in World War II, Frank the First. He died on the USS Dorchester. He was attacked by uh, submarine, German submarines and there's a memorial for him every single year. So he died uh, in World War II, man. And who knows if, you know, because my dad never met him. <clears throat> my grandfather, I he died when I was one. I never met him. 
I heard he was a great man, but he loved to drink, of course. And uh, every time you asked my grandfather his background, he just said he was American. So I don't even know if we knew if my great grandfather enjoyed the drink, but I guarantee you 99.9% if I had to throw all my money in that he probably was a big time drinker, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, then back to, to your childhood. So I know you were a pretty uh, keen athlete. Tell me about the sports that you loved in uh, school age. Um, growing up in like, you know, young, young, young age, I played, you know, baseball, basketball. When I got to high school, I played high school football all four years. Um, I won the coaches award senior year. I got a little mini scholarship. Um, I ended up going, I went to, I went to a community college for two years and I just had a great conversation with someone. It's like when I stopped playing football for two years of high school, I felt like I missed a part of something. Like I admit, like I lost an identity, man. So I missed football so much. I trained 150 days and I didn't drink. And at that time, I wouldn't say I had a drinking issue because I barely drank. And to me, I gave up drinking because I knew it would affect my performance on, on working out. So I gave up drinking, ate clean, barely any cheat meals for 150 days. And I walked on to, uh, uh, my, my college, which is SUNY Cortland up by, uh, Syracuse, New York. And I played college football there. Um, but in high school, I also became an Eagle Scout the day before my 18th birthday. So that was a pretty cool award as well. Yeah. Now, did you have any issues stopping that first time when, when you realized that the performance is more important than the alcohol? Oh, no, not at all. Not even close. I That was like a decision I made that day. I met with my old high school coach and we made a list of what we wrote out everything I needed to do these next 150 days. And everything I did, I took it serious. And, um, you know, I would be at house parties, hanging out with my buddies. and like, oh, come on, Frank, one sip. And I'm like, you know, get that away from me. And they were joking around, but it was not even, it was, you know, at that point, my conscious, it wasn't even a conscious decision. Oh, so I picked up a drink. It was like, I'm not even, there's not, I didn't have to think twice of picking up a drink or not. Brilliant. Now, um, when you were at the high school age, what were your career aspirations back then? Uh, firefighter or cop, either one, but whoever called me first. <laughs> Are you vol- were you volunteering even at that age or was it later on uh yeah so i became a volunteer fireman at 17 to about 20 years old and then i stopped when i went to college all right so with with your uh you know, your service as a volunteer were there any experiences that initially triggered anything negative in your mind because obviously you know what you guys see what we see in the fire service um Alone, I don't think is, is, you know, the be all and end all as far as mental ill health, but certainly can definitely be a trigger for, for something that's lurking in the back of the mind. Right. Um, n- no, when I was volunteer fireman, no. Um, I fought only two real structure fires. Um, I only remember that because they were pretty big fires and it was cool to say, wow, I, uh, you know, was that a real fire? I cut some people out of cars, but no, nothing really, n- nothing bothers me from that end. Um, again, I only did it for three years, you know. Right. So then tell me about your journey into law enforcement. So I studied criminal justice at RCC for two years. And when I went to Cortland, I studied criminology. And I'm lucky because I took the NYPD test uh, very early at about 18 years old. Um, I took a bunch of other tests, New York State Trooper, uh, the Port Authority. I passed all these tests, got pretty good grades. And um, I decided to go with New York City. Uh, and I got in. I, they wanted me in at like 21, 22, and I put it on hold because I wanted to get my college degree, the bachelor degree. So I ended up getting in the academy of July, July 8, 2015. 
Right. So then with the the um, history of playing sports, you know, pretty far into uh, you know, college age, how did you find the physical demands of Police Academy when you went there? And, and did you feel prepared? Oh, um, yeah. So after co- after college football, I actually picked up powerlifting and I competed in like Las Vegas at a world event in a hotel, which is really cool. So I was still training. So when I was in the academy, to be honest, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was it was good, you know, because here I am, I'm getting paid. I'm getting and people need to look at it like this. You're getting paid to work out, so you're making yourself physically better, mentally tougher, and you're getting paid to learn. So I thought it was great, you know. I would be in the academy, I would train, um, we would do our academy, I would come home, I would lift my powerlifting for about an hour and a half, and then I would do my studies for about an hour and a half, two hours, and go to bed and do that basically every day for six months. And how did you find that powerlifting specifically contributed to football and then law enforcement? Uh, powerlifting to me, it's it, it's you. It's literally you versus you. So you want to go out there and beat your numbers that you did last week and your lifts that you did maybe a few months ago. And for me, it's the perfect mindset because literally no one can get that weight off the bar. No one can get that weight off the ground off your back, off it besides you, you know, football is a team sport, 11 guys, every, everyone has a job, right? For you, powerlifting, no one's going to get the weight up for you. No one's going to make you go into the gym and get that extra rep and that set. And for me, that can make all the difference in the world, especially in law enforcement, uh, when you're out there. And again, if it's just you, no one's going to help. If you, if you're on solo patrol, if you're by yourself doing a foot post and you have to handcuff someone, right? It's, it's just you. No one's going to help you most likely in New York City get those cuffs on until backup arrives. So for me, pushing through, grinding through those reps, making your body feel like, wow, I just squatted 405 for two reps and, you know, I, and all of a sudden three reps wasn't on the, on the, on the schedule, but I just hit it for three. Um, that's just like a huge mental booster to me. I don't really care that it's a PR, but for me, it's a, it's a tough, it's a more of a mental PR. Like, wow, I just grinded through that third rep when I wasn't expecting it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And I think that that's a very important thing for us, our professions to look for, whether it's jujitsu or CrossFit or powerlifting, um, where you put yourself in places that are uncomfortable, where you really have to dig deep. And obviously, you know, there's a certain weight where you're just not going to be able to lift it up, period. If I got underneath a thousand pounds, (laughs) it's just going to stand there and laugh at me. But yeah, to, to kind of skirt that, that extra five or 10%, so that when you are in a life-threatening situation, you've been to that miserable place before other than, say, for example, the academy, which could be years and years before. Exactly, 100%. It's that fight-or-flight mode, the adrenaline pumped in, and you're, you're, you're recognizing again. You're like, oh, wow, this might be the same adrenaline pump I got when I have to hit a deadlift PR, and now you know, I just handcuffed someone, um, and, I'm, and, I, and I did it safely. I didn't get hurt because that's the job, right? You don't want to get hurt. You want to come home at the end of the day and do it as safe as possible and um, keep everyone around you safe. Yeah. Now, what about the, uh, the unarmed um, component? Did you get taught a good amount of combatives in the academy? Uh, in my year, honestly, no. Um, we, did, we did some training, um, but again, it's more of like – it wasn't as physical as I thought it was going to be, but I'm lucky that, you know, the gym I just opened up, the, my buddy, he's my friend, but he's also my partner. Uh, he's a, a retired second grade detective from Bronx um, robbery and Bronx taxi and city crime. And he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu for 35 years. So again, on the, uh, you know, as I told you, I was training after the academy. We were doing that. 
almost every other day. And it really definitely learned a lot. You know, I didn't, I wasn't get, going, getting my belt or anything, but we were just doing basic tactics, you know, more of like if you're on the ground and you got to get someone's arm, um, stand up and all that stuff. And it definitely paid off. And even verbal jiu-jitsu, you know, we talked about different, different things and different scenarios that we created on our own, you know, and a lot of people should be doing this type of things because the academy is not going to teach you all that. The, you know, the job sometimes is not going to teach you all that, but I guarantee you, you're going to get into an instance out there where you're going to need that type of training or just that familiarity to say, wow, I've been here before. Exactly what you just said, you know? Yeah. Well, what's interesting in the fire service is our basic training, our academy is literally called, titled Minimum Standards. So they lay it there on the table like, hey, we're teaching you just enough to not get killed on day one. It's up to you to you know, to carry on. So, yeah, I think it's actually a good label looking back. You're like, all right, loud and clear. <laughs> I don't know anything. Thank you. Literally, that that's really it. It's like, all right, here's one life, here's one light vest that will last you one day in the ocean, um, and now you got to survive another 300, 364 days, you know, if you're stuck at sea. Exactly, exactly. All right, so... Listening to your conversation on Mark Bell's podcast, I had Chris, his brother, on the show. I'm hoping to get Mark at some point as well. Um, the first interesting thing, and it's something I've discussed with um, several people I've had on, is when you were at NYPD, you were actually assigned to a, a team of two. Is that correct? So you actually had a partner in that in that um, uh... in the patrol car. Yes, thank you. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> Okay, so tell me before we get into you know changing departments, tell me all the the pros you found of being in a two person team in law enforcement. Oh, um, well, right away you you have not just a partner. If you have a partner that you enjoy, and that's your partner, that's your your brother, that's your sister, that's your best friend, man. That person might be more, that person to me is you spend more time with that person than you do with your wife, your kids, your girlfriend, your mother, your family. So that person is a main priority in your life. And you build a connection with that person that's going to last the rest of your lifetime. And right away, when you retire off the job, when you're not working, you have someone to call, to talk to, someone that you know that's going to be there for you, basically 24-7. And that's the number one thing I take from it. And then you have, you know, obviously two brains are most hopefully better than one, you, you know, you have more of a presence um, tactically instead of handcuffing, you know, when you're by yourself, you have another cop to help you and it goes a long way and you, you learn from each other. That's the best thing. You know, we're here on this earth to grow and to learn from each other. So I've learned great amounts of partners and people that I've worked with, especially they have more time on than me. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm observing from a complete, you know, layman's standpoint, I'm a fireman, I have nothing to do with law enforcement whatsoever. But I know from talking to John McCarthy, the MMA um, UFC ref, and some other people I had, he was LAPD, um, that there were, I guess, certain leaders in law enforcement that started saying, well, let's put more cars out versus two people in a car and spread these people out. Well, now you see a lot of these incidents, whether it's a civilian that's been shot or whether it's a law enforcement officer that's lost their life. And as a civilian watching these videos, you're like, if there were two of them, would that have happened? And I think that the de- deterrent of a lot of these um, violence on police officers and then probably the inability to detain someone would be greatly minimized if we had two people per vehicle. Right. And each department doesn't have the manpower and NYPD is the biggest police department in the world, you know, but that's a perfect example. In the 41st precinct just about two months ago, 
a, a perpetrator walked up to the van and shot a cop in the neck, just missed his artery. Um, and what happened? Him and his partner switched, switched. Uh, he was a driver. He went to the passenger side. His partner from the passenger side went to the driver's side and drove him to the hospital and saved his life. So now just imagine if he was by himself. Um, he probably, who knows what would happen, you know? Yeah, exactly. And in the fire service, we have a very, very strong buddy system. Like, you know, we always go in with another person. This is some absolute crisis situation where all rules are out the window. There's always two of us. And it's for that reason. You know, if one of us goes down, the other one's there to pull them out. And I, I get spreading resources. But again, you know, I, I'd be interested to see the real life statistics of more cars on the road versus fewer cars, but teams of two and, and their ability to, to yeah. you know to be effective and maybe therefore needing to stop you guys responding to some of the calls that you simply shouldn't be sent to in the first place. Yeah, I think those those more cars is uh, just a deter crime, right? But to me, if you're in a car with two and you're two miles away, you know you're going to get there quick. It's, you know you're going to get there fast with lights and sirens. But, but um, if you're two miles away and it's a one-on-one person and those 30 seconds, so that's a huge difference. When you're a solo patrol and you walk into a violent family dispute, man, it, it can turn on to two-on-one really fast. Yeah, actually, that's a very sad thing as so many of the fallen police officer stories that you see were a domestic dispute that they responded to. Right, and when you pull over a car, especially in New York City with two, three people in a car and they see two, two cops, they're going to think twice. If you got one cop pulling you over and there's two, three people in the car, well, automatically as a cop, you can call for backup because you're outnumbered. And two, it might give the, those people in the car, if they want to act, they, they might act because they think, all right, we'll get away with it. Maybe there's not, again, nighttime, right? There's not a lot of witnesses out. They might be able to try to get away with something that they wouldn't. If you have another cop next to you and, God forbid, something happens, they're able to get the license plate. They're able to identify um uh, a, per- a perpetrator or something like that you know so there's so many different variables yeah another thing i've seen just from personal experience i got pulled over the other day for literally rolling through a stop sign i mean it can't have been four miles yeah. an hour but regardless they were, roll, baby. they were on it so and i was in the wrong it says stop it wasn't a complete stop so i'll own it but yeah so it was a female cop and then basically she just waited behind me till another cop showed up so it's all well and good to say, oh, we have more cars. It's like, yeah, but then you have to wait for a second one to come before you can even do anything. So that kind of makes that single car redundant then. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's kind of just time is so valuable, especially in life, but especially in law enforcement, every second counts. You know that. So that that, that clock is ticking when, and especially on a car stop, there's no, and I hate, you see the newspaper loves to do this in the media. Oh, routine, routine car stop. Well, listen, no, no car stop is routine. Because you don't even know who you're pulling over. You know what I mean? You don't know who's in the car. You run the license plate. It might say John Doe. And you don't even know if it's John Doe. It might be freaking, uh, I don't know, Anthony Martinez or a- Anthony White in the car. And just because the license plate says it, you know what I mean? So you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing that uh, I had a guy, Kyle Reyes, on a while ago. And he made a good point. Like, you know, how many cars, especially where I live in Florida, are there dark tints? So, you know, we get a lot of that. Oh, they pulled them well, over. That's legal. They, that's legal in Florida, right? Or no? Or um, it's, 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 a lot of them are illegal, but, you know, they, they say, oh, it was racially motivated. Well, you couldn't even see through the window. How do you know it was racially motivated? You have no right. idea. It could have been an 80-year-old white woman driving, you know? So, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I don't envy you guys at all. And my whole thing with the two to a car is if it's taxpayers, which, you know, you and I are as well. People forget that. Just because we're first responders doesn't mean we don't pay our taxes as well. 
um, that we need to you know put whatever's in place in law enforcement and fire and EMS and dispatch to make it as safe as possible for the community and the responder. Yeah, 100%. I appreciate that, man, because about the tent windows, um, I take that back because there's a list I have it on my phone. It shows each state. So each state varies on the percentage of the window tints. Do you know what I mean? So New York State, uh, 70% of the of light has to go through to it to be legal. But, you know, down in Florida or down in um, especially other states, it's a lot less. So it might be 50%, which makes it look like the, the, car, the, the windows are, are darker. But... When you pull over uh, Florida plates or you pull over Pennsylvania plate, uh, plates or South Carolina plates and Ohio plates and Connecticut plates, I can go on and on all these different plates you see in New York City. And they're like, oh, well, I got this car registered in um, Florida and the plates are not 70 percent there. I'm just to give an example. It's 50 percent because it's going to look darker. I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, but you're traveling on New York state roads and this is the law. Do you know what I mean? So a lot of people are confused about that. But, yeah, the tent is, you know, it's a safety issue for all law enforcement. And to me. Why, why, why do you have tints? So people don't see who you are. Um, I, I, I just, are you trying to do something you're not supposed to do? You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's weird for me down here because people are like, Oh, I, I saw you. I waved to you. I'm like, well, I can't see you if your car looks like a presidential motorcade for Christ's right. sake. <laughs> if you're going to wave, roll down your bloody window at least. <laughs> That's funny. So. Yeah, <laughs> All right. So anyway, so you're, you're working with NYPD. You're in a two man unit. So tell me, tell me about changing departments. Um, so I worked in the South Bronx for two and a half years in a pretty, one of the worst, I was, it was a really bad precinct crime wise, you know? Um, and I did that for two and a half years. Uh, and I honestly, I enjoyed it. You know, I had no problems. Um, I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed the guys I worked with and I learned a lot, not just police work, you know, more of like life, right? So many different cultures, so many different people, so many different things that I would have never learned if I didn't become a New York City police officer. For the better, in my mind, you know, you, you, you take it and you, and you learn from it. Um, so I left in 2018 and I went to my hometown, my hometown department um, in 2000, January of 2018. I transferred police departments. And that's when it, for me, it went downhill from there. So, so walk me through that. So, I mean, when you were with NYPD, you're in a very rough area, but you're in a, a close tribe. So you're working with people that you love and, you know, you, you have that, that sense of community. Before you left, were you aware of any any issues mentally at all? No, not at all. I was working out, powerlifting, competing, um, working doubles, doing everything, you know, to, I would say – more, a little more than average, you know, making my, you know, making collars, doing, doing good police work, um, just being a, a normal average police officer in New York City and an average person outside, you know, um, in my personal life. So there was no issues. Um, and when I was in NYPD, what was huge for me was I felt like I was playing college football again that we talked about. I felt like I was part of a, a big team. We were working together. And again, that playing high school football and college football and working out especially in powerlifting at the time, gave me that mental awareness, gave me that that positive energy that a lot of people I wish, you know, never had the experience in their life before they became a cop to get that mental mindset in my eyes. Um, so when I came to my home department, that's when it all went downhill, like I said. And to me, you know, I'm close. It, this is like 
the money is much higher in New York City. Um, you're closer to home. The crime rate is not nearly as high as New York City. So it's like a home run, you know? It's like you just made the New York Yankees of, of police. You know what I mean? It's called the police lottery. Everyone wants to go to the, the small town, the small town department because it makes sense. You're safer and you make more money. Um, but when I got there, you know, I said, wow, this is not for me. I knew away. I knew right away within about two months, not even a month and a half. Um, and to me, I was like, am I really going to sit in the car by myself for eight hours a day in my hometown, um, knowing everybody, seeing everybody, answering a lot of the same jobs. And, you know, really I became, if I wanted to make money, I could have went to another career. But for me, there's over 300 units in the NYPD. So you can have a career, right, man? A career. There's so many opportunities. Once you're off patrol in New York City, life gets not, it, it, it definitely gets a lot better, you know? You're, so to me, I said, because again, we can get into the psychological aspect, man, of answering the radio for 20 to 25 years. That's just very, very, that's just very tough. So God bless the guys that did 20 years on patrol, that are doing 20 years, that are doing 25 years, because it's a lot of wear and tear physically and mentally. But to me, I had to make a decision where, you know, this wasn't for me. This is not what I wanted my career to look like. And a lot of guys in my hometown, they do patrol for almost their whole entire career. There's not a lot of movement. There's not a lot of rank advancement. So it's a completely different world. It's a, it was a completely different world. Now, what about that that sense of uh, community in that department? Because I'll, I'll preface it by saying I, I, I had my closest crew was in California. It was just years and years ago now. And I absolutely loved it. And I moved back because we had a little boy and my now ex-wife wanted to go back to a family. So it was the number one priority is your family. So even though I adored my job, that, that it, was, it wasn't even a decision. I had to go. But I never felt like I got that try back. And when I went to the next one, it, it was good. I had some good crews. But then the final one I went to, there was no community at all, quite the opposite. And it was crushing. And I went from adoring the job to almost dreading going to work. And I loved doing the job when the calls, you know, the tones went off and we ran the calls. I was in hog heaven like always, but it was coming back after. So what was it about your hometown versus uh, NYPD that jarred with you? Um, you're talking about the community as in like the department community or the actual community in the outside world? Department community, the community um, that you have within the profession. Right. Um, I mean, the, the guys were great. I'm still friends with them. Um, but the, the job is just not a busy department. So you don't get as many experiences of saving each other's lives, helping each other, being there, um, and doing those type of jobs and build, you know, to me, it was just, it's, you can't, you, you, you really can't explain the camaraderie and the friendships you, you get out of with the New York City, um, the people you work with, and then in any other department. Just because, especially coming from a busy precinct, how busy it is and how you're bonding with them every single day. You know, there's sometimes in here in my hometown department, I have one or two calls. That's it. When I'm in New York City, there's a minimum of 20 jobs a day. You know, you can go from 20 to 30 jobs. Right. So then you, so you talk about that's when things came crashing down. So kind of lead me through. You know the 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 months and couple of years after leaving NYPD. Then, so January two thousand eighteen, I I switched departments, and then I re I what we just went over. I realized it wasn't for me, and then my family, everyone was so proud, everyone was so happy. You got here, you're safer, 
you, you made it. This is a great job. And then, you know, they can see that I started getting uh, upset and uh, especially my girlfriend. And, um, you know, I, my body, James, I just shut down and I just started, you know, you know, being by myself and thinking I made a wrong choice. Like, wow, I should have never left the city, but I'm here. And people are like, just give it time, give it time. And I gave it time. And I knew though, I just knew that I had to go. I wanted to go back. I had to go back for my career because there was, it, I enjoyed it. Um, and this wasn't a decision, you know, man, going, all right, am I going to get McDonald's or Burger King today? This is, this is my career. This is my life. This is what I worked so hard for since I told you I was a little kid. I wanted to be a cop or a fireman. So um, my body, I kind of just like you said, I got depressed and I got depressed. My Frank made Frank depressed from his own thoughts and holding it in. Right. So over a period of time, when you start thinking negative, when you're not when you're not happy, when you're not feeling alive, what you're doing, what's going to happen? Those thoughts are going to become negative. And a negative thought is three times more powerful than a positive thought. And when you keep telling yourself, this job isn't for me, I made a wrong choice, those thoughts, they grow. And they grow really, really, really fast. And, they, and um, they're very powerful. So I had a very hard time with the transition. And I stopped eating. Um, I got rid of my social media. I stopped lifting. And I lifted for 10 years, you know, almost every other day. Uh, I started not doing the things that I like that I enjoyed. And what am I telling you is that that's a simple sign of depression. So for me, the anxiety came first of, you know, what am I get just sitting in there and be like, am I going to get a call today? Um, should I go back to New York city? What is my family going to think of me? What is the community going to think of me? Cause anyone that comes to the, the a smaller department there, they don't, they, they want to come here. They don't want to go back. Um, and again, I got, I joined the job at 23. I came here, I came to my small department at 25. I'm 27 years old. So I'm a young, I'm a young person and I didn't have a family. Uh, I didn't have kids. So it's like, you know, if I had family, right, Greg, if I had kids, maybe I did 10 years in New York City, life would be different. But I'm not, I wasn't there yet. You know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't, life wasn't there. I wasn't at that point in life yet. So I, had to make this major decision and I shut down, like I said, and I lost 20 pounds. And then by the time April and May came down, I was like, not, I was not in a good way. No, I was like, wow. I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like 163 pounds. It's like where I started before I started working out, you know? So it's like I time traveled mentally and physically, um, back to maybe senior year of high school football when I just started lifting and, and uh, getting mentally ready for my life, I felt like I just backtracked and lost everything. And that has a huge toll on yourself, especially when you isolate, you don't talk to your friends. And again, I just got stuck in my own head. Right now, so when, you, when you're kind of in this other place, and again, I can relate. Like I said, I, I yearned to be back in the crew that I had out west, and I never got that back to, to the same extent, to, to the point where I think it was, God, what was it? seven years i think after i left my entire crew came over and they were my my groomsmen for my wedding like that stayed even though i changed departments and met some awesome people i know exactly what it is to yearn to that and i and i yearn for the 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 um the calls i yearn for that intensity i was a young hungry fireman or youngish <laughs> i started a little bit late in life but um you know and I, and I wanted those calls i didn't want to be watching you know jerry springer marathons I wanted to be out there getting it, you know. So, so you know, you went from from being healthy. All of a sudden, you're not doing one of your most positive outlets, which was your lifting. So, what started to become the coping mechanism instead? 
doing nothing. Um, and you know, I have to take full responsibility, right, James? Because I power. What, what did I do? I held these thoughts in. I told some people, but I was afraid. I was embarrassed. So of course, I led. What do you lead to? You lead to Jose and my buddy Jose, Jose Cuervo, and that was a downfall. That's when I started abusing alcohol, right? Because I drank socially on the weekends, and I still, before this, I drank every weekend. You know, not every weekend. That's a lie, but. I, I I drank socially, and um, now I'm using Jose. I'm using, you know, any type of alcohol I can get to numb the pain and to make me try to forget what's really going on and getting escaping reality. So when you drink and you're drinking because you're depressed or you're anxious, you're trying to escape the reality and you're trying to numb the feeling of the depression and the anxiety for me, the anxiety came first. And then once I knew I had depression, it was nothing I've never felt in my life before. And that was an experience that I never want to experience again. And I really, I feel bad for people that do experience it. And again, one of the main reasons we'll touch later is why I'm opening up this gym. But that depression was, I was a young kid. I was 25. You know, I, I still think you're a kid until you're 30. You know, I, I think you, you just have a lot of life to live and to learn. Um, and I love this quote. The Rock says he don't know who the hell he was in his 20s. He didn't know anything. He thought he knew everything. In his 30s, he learned a little more. And when he was in, he finally, the Rock finally felt comfortable in his own skin when he reached his 40s. And that's coming from the Rock. So I hope a lot of people think about that if they're going through a midlife crisis or anything in their 20s or early 30s. But I started to cope um, with alcohol. And when I did drink, I never drank by myself. Ever in my in 25 years of my life, I would never come home and be like, ah, you know what? It was a rough day at work. I'm going to have a six pack. No, when I drank, it was meet the guys after work, maybe meet some of my buddies that were, you know, not on the job, and we drank and bullshitted, and then that's what that's what it led to. If um, it depended on how long we were out for, but I didn't drink just because the job gave me stress or I was stressed until I uh, went into this little spiral of my little depression. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about discovering you had anxiety. Just tell me about your first time. Um, <clears throat> I guess, so everyone has anxiety, right? Before a test, before a big game, before a big lift, maybe before a date. So if you don't say you have anxiety, that's BS. There's just different levels of anxiety, right? If it's chronic anxiety, um, situational anxiety. For me, it was the same feeling of, uh, just what happened was when I started losing the weight, it was to the anxiety was not letting me eat. You know, it was, I was just, my stomach was inside out. I thought I was never going to be able to go back to New York city and I would just lose weight. I lost weight. I stopped eating. Um, my throat would close up and I'd be sick to my stomach sometimes where I'm like, fuck it would. And I didn't think it was true like the movies, but I, it's embarrassing, but I threw up. I would throw up sometimes because I was so sick to my stomach. And then, you know, you go to work and try to fight it off and pretend you don't have it. And, then you go back home and it's a cycle. So then what point did you realize that you needed to seek counseling? Oh, man. Um, and that was the thing, right? I never wanted to. I never wanted to. I wanted to fight it off so I couldn't do this, right, James? Because I'm a cop. I can't I can't see someone. I can't talk to anybody. Are you kidding me? Like, what? Are, what is everyone going to think of me? The, all that basic cliche things you see. Then my fi my family was freaking out, and I'm like, you know what? I'll do it. So I seek I seek some help in May, April of 2018, and help as in just psychotherapy. But the psychotherapy was like a band aid, right? Because for four or five months, I've already lost all the weight. I've already 
uh, got myself into a routine of feeling not good about myself. And uh, every session I had with this guy who is a great man, um, still friends with him today, um, was should I stay or should I leave? You know, that song, uh, should I stay or should I go now? You know, that was, that was like the, my theme song, man, you know? And it was like, that's literally like over 20 sessions. That's all we talked about. You know, we talked about my family, we, but I had nothing else to talk about because I was so obsessed. I became obsessed with should I stay or should I go because I didn't want to make the wrong choice, you know? And that's what it is in life. You need to make a decision and you need to stick with it. And I think the Punisher said it, Frank Castle, you know, you got to make a decision. If it's right or right, right or wrong, left or right, uh, crunchy or soft, right? Like a taco, you make a decision and you go with it. So at that time I got stuck and I don't, and I, and getting stuck, man, is one of the worst feelings in the world. So I saw a psychotherapy and he recommended me to see, a, um, and now a, a, psych, a psychiatrist. And when I saw that psychiatrist, James, you want to talk about a zombie, you want to talk about everything. What, what I thought that wasn't possible, it got, a thousand times worse where I didn't think it was humanly possible because I didn't have a traumatic event. I didn't grow up with a bad family. I had a great life. I worked hard and I'm like, how and why is this happening to me? And again, it was my own thoughts that I made them so powerful and so negative thinking that got me to this. And then once when I went on the medication, oh man, Frank was just a walking zombie, man. He was just flesh walking around. There was no feeling. There was no nothing. James, you could have came to my house, beat up my mom and I probably would have just stood there. And that's not me, you know, to me, I, I, I'm a fighter and that's how I got to where I am today. And that's how I got into the police department. Yeah. And, and the, I had a, a, a gentleman on Kevin Hines, just, just, I literally released the episode um, a couple of days ago and he came from a, you know, a very severe mental health background. He had, you know, diagnosed bipolar, schizophrenia. And in his case, medication is absolutely a tool that they use and they have to keep reevaluating and changing, but it's part of his uh, ability to, to, um, to deal with his condition. But this is a very severe chemical imbalance. But what I see from many, many people is they, in the counseling world, they go straight to, I mean, not counseling world, the psychiatry world specifically, they go straight to psych meds. And, and, you know, we see this a lot in, in the health side of it, the physical health, where the same thing, there's no discussion on, on diet and exercise. They'll just prescribe, you know, blood pressure pills, cholesterol pills, pre, pre-diabetes pills, and not talk at all about what you're eating, you know, the prevention. When are we going to get you off these pills? Um, and this is a very dangerous thing that I've heard many, many, many times of people, um, that are given these pills is, you know, where's, where's the end point? I get it if someone's in absolute crisis and using this as a short term to deescalate their mood to try and get them into counseling. But, um, so, you know, tell me about your kind of pharmaceutical journey. You got prescribed the first one. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and you hit it on the point, right? Because I believe working out, eating healthy, and psychotherapy, even like this, man, we're just talking, we're enjoying our each other's experience, we're enjoying life. This is, going to help depression and anxiety if you suffer from it chronically and if you just have if you're in a bad spell for people that are very sick like you just said we're talking schizophrenic psychosis really sick people they need that medication to cope and to to to, to survive and try to level them out and we're not just talking about depressed people um because i have a buddy of mine that saw somebody for the first time right james and he, you know she's like oh i could tell you're depressed maybe you should meet with this psychiatrist and go on some medication well maybe my buddy should start working out 
and getting on a routine as best as he can. And I'm not talking about powerlifting. I'm talking about like, you know, Stan Efforting and Mark Bell, three 10-minute walks a day, lifting some weights, eating eating clean, changing your meal plan a little bit for a month or two, and then see what happens to the depression and the anxiety. Because I guarantee you that it will go down. And it's, you know, it's all depends on who you, sur- uh, who you surround yourself with. So when people come in and the first time they recommend medication, that really just really pisses me off and gets me upset because how could you do that to someone when it's not like they're suicidal, they're not homicidal, they're just going through a hard time. But if they're not taking healthy steps, um, let's try to get them to get healthy steps and make a routine for a month or two and just see if something changes, you know? So I got handed, it was like a, it was like a candy shop for me. You know, I was like, come on in, Frank. What, what, what are we going to give you today? So it was, it was absurd. It was, uh, I got, I, let's see, I got Prozac and Seroquel for about a month. And that's when I didn't even know who I was. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Um, it made me, it made me worse. Uh, to me, it made me worse. Um, and after a month, I came in and said, listen, I, I don't want this because it, it's now I thought I was bad. Now I'm really, really bad. Where I'm talking like, it's taking me 10 minutes to read the same report, basic report over and over again, you know? And I'm like, then you start feeling, wow, Frank, you, you, you moron. You can't even read. You can't type. Do you know what I mean? So now more negative thoughts are coming in. Now I'm beating myself up even more. So after that, I got put on Zoloft. So now when I was on the Zoloft, this is the Prozac and the Seroquel. The Seroquel is probably around May or June of 2018. Then I got put on the Zoloft in June of 2018. And uh, the Zoloft made me feel like I was going to work drunk every day. I was sweating in the patrol car. I couldn't log into the computer. It was a disaster. So I go in and I say, listen, I feel like I'm going to work drunk. I can't even remember the reports I did yesterday. I got to go and, and read over all, read over all of them just to remind myself. Um, and she said, and then what did, what did they do? They upped the medication of the Zoloft. And I said, great. So, you know, in my head, I don't know a lot about SSRIs. I've never been down this path. I didn't really know anything. So I, you're, you're the professional. I said, okay, okay, I'll do it. So I upped the Zoloft and then I started researching all this stuff, man, of SSRIs, people's experiences, people's, why they got off of them, um, how long they were on for them, what's some really recommendation for um, someone that's never had a major depressive disorder before and they got it like how I did. Do you really need them? Um, all this stuff I just started because I needed to for myself and for my life. Um, so after the Zoloft, I went on it was like out of a movie you ever see the movie the departed man with um with uh, mark Wahlberg and with uh, leonardo dicaprio yes yeah great film seen it a couple right, times you know leonardo dicaprio when he pretends to be you know the, the the undercover the bad guy and he's really like the, he's working for the state troopers or he's working for the cops and he's seen those the, she, he's seen the police therapist yes that's how i felt because he's like this is not me she's like how are you feeling today He's like, you want to know my feelings, my, my effing feelings. And then, you know, he went off and I, and I wanted to go off because he's, you know, he's freaking out. He's taking out all these medications. He said, I'm becoming someone that I'm not. And that's what was happening to James. And that's what happens to a lot of people out there. And then after that, the Rex Salty, I was on Wellbutrin. <laughs> and then, you know what? I said, I can't take this anymore. I caught the medication cold and I started drinking uh, even, even more, uh, by my, I said, you know what, I'm going to cut it cold Turkey, which I recommend no one to ever do. 
Do not put SSRIs or any medication cold turkey. Um, not even if you're drinking every day, uh, don't cut that cold turkey because you, you could die from alcoholic withdrawals. You need medical professional help. So I cut the Wellbutrin and I drank and I was still working and I was still depressed. And then in November of 2018 is when my family and someone in my family is very close to me as a doctor said, enough is enough, Frank. You need to go to the hospital because you're shutting down. You know, you're still skinny. You're not talking. You're not doing anything. You go to work, you come home, you lay in bed, you don't work out. You know, my off days, I would be in my bed for two or three days, you know, just sitting there thinking, thinking of my own thoughts. It was a disaster. So then that's when I went to the hospital, the hospital, man. I went to New York Presbyterian um, from November 2018 to January 2019. You know, I had no Christmas. I had no New Year's. I was uh, stuck in the hospital for six weeks of, uh, of my life. Amazing. Now, tell me about the treatment in the hospital, because, you know, there's not too many people who've been on the show that have actually self-admitted. One of my other friends, as a fireman, did as well. Thank goodness he, he had a great um, outcome the last time he did, because he basically told me if if it wasn't successful, he was going to end it all. So, you know, that was a pretty you know, nerve-wracking few weeks waiting for him to come out the other end. Um, right. What were the pros and cons of your specific stay? Well, I'm happy he came out on the other end, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, again, a lot of people do think like that, James. If they, if they don't come out of this, they're going to – but, again, there's so many other treatments out there and so many other programs that you can't just – and it's hard to say when you're so depressed not to give up after one treatment, after two treatments. Um, but I'll get into that when I went to the treatment that helped me. So I went to New York Presbyterian in Manhattan, and it was – honestly, it was a disaster. It – I was there – I was locked up there. I say locked up because you couldn't go outside. I went outside to play basketball maybe 30 minutes a day, every three days, if that. Um, now we're talking about here is a kid that's depressed. And I'm with people that are suffering from what we talked before, schizophrenic, psychosis. I mean, a girl was walking up and down the hallway with a book on her head um, for hours. Like, you can't make this stuff up, James. And I said, holy shit, Frank, look where you are right now. Now, now no one's ever going to believe – no one's going to trust you. They're really going to think you're crazy. My family would visit me. I felt terrible. Um, you know, and here I am. You know, the doctors, they talk to you for 10, 15 minutes a day and that's it, James. You've got 23 hours to the rest of yourself. Now, thank God I had a good roommate. You know, he was an older man, Italian man, so funny and he kept me in good spirits. But if I didn't have him, I had – and then other people have other roommates that you don't know. And these are really sick people. And again, I was in the hospital. They gave me now I'm off all those medications I told you, but now I'm on Effexor. So now Effexor, nope, yep, I'm on Effexor. It's a different medication. So I'm in there. So I got out of the hospital within three weeks, right? And I got out of the hospital and I said, wow. I started laughing to myself, Frank. I said, holy shit, Frank, you're worse. You're worse before than you came in. And you didn't think you could get any worse, you know? So then I went back to the hospital. Two days later, I said, listen, I'm not better. And I told him, listen, I have... I had to take responsibility, this whole thing, and a lot of people don't want to take responsibility for their action, but responsibility is what's going to save your life. I had to take responsibility and say, hey, I'm coping with alcohol, I'm drinking, um, and they said, you should have told us in the first place, so then that's when they sent me to a two-week rehab um, over near Presbyterian, and I learned a lot, but I was still on the effector, and I was on a different, I was on a different floor with other people, and um, that was definitely a lot better help than just sitting upstairs um, for 
23 hours and the doctors are uh, talking to you for 10 minutes a day. You know, to me, it was it was a joke. Yeah, and it's interesting how amongst all that, you refer to the person that was the most healing was just your roommate. So here we are with basic human interaction and conversation again being more powerful than yep. the structured, you know, treatments that were there. Oh, yeah. Like, again, if I had you as a roommate or if I was able to call you every day there, I guarantee you I would have it would have been felt 10 times better. You know, like, again, human life experience interaction and how you take it. So, yeah, that's a good way. I've really never thought about it like that. But again, my family came and stuff, but my family didn't come every day. There's only visiting hours. They can only come an hour at a time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the other thing you, you talked about was um, not seeing daylight. And that's you know, it's so, so undervalued, you know, and, and I see a lot of ridicule right now with this um, coronavirus going on. People are like, oh, daylight's not going to, sunlight's not going to stop it. Like, no, that's not the point what people are trying to make. If you sit in your house all day, you're going to get so chronically depressed. You can leave the house, go walk around your neighborhood. Don't French kiss strangers, but, you know, you can still get out there and see the sun because there's so much healing to physically oh, breathing fresh air and looking at sunshine 100 percent, and you just hit it man not even the sun the fresh air the living environment the plants like you're getting very spiritual right now but like you know the 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 plants and everything that's that stuff if you don't believe it or not gives off energy you know and it makes you feel better like i guarantee you if you read a book outside on a nice sunny day in the middle of central park or in a park with nice flowers and nice scenery it's going to feel 10 times better than you in your house during this coronavirus, um, sitting there with the lights off trying to read, you know, guarantee. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the people who got to kind of read between the lines with this self-isolation. Don't be around a bunch of people, but get out your house. I mean, I know some of us are luckier than others as far as, you know, the the neighborhoods that we live in. But yeah, get, get that sunlight on your face, even if it's just in your front porch. Oh, 100%. Get out of your house, go for the walk, go for the run, and reach out to people. You have Skype, you have Zoom, you have FaceTime, and check in. Like we just said, human interaction. Check in, see how you're doing. Reach out to people you haven't reached out into a while, and for a while. This could be a topic on your own hands on what you should really be doing during this time like this, but that's that's for a different that's for a different time, you know? Yeah, I think sadly everyone's got a video of what they think we should be doing right now. <laughs> some is great right. information, some is terrible. <laughs> yep. yep. All right, well then, so let's talk about your journey out then so you know, you had that experience so tell me you know the the journey to where it worked and where you came out the other side yourself so now i'm in the hospital so now imagine my thoughts right james i'm never going to be a cop i'm never going to get a job this is what i was thinking you know people are never gonna people are going to think i'm crazy people are going to say wow what happened to frank uh he was always you know he always worked out and now he just lost it you know i heard you know i you know he went insane and um things like that and then I left the hospital and I got out and, you know, I started talking to my job. I still had my job at the time and they're like, you're very depressed. I said, yeah, I know I'm depressed. Uh, I need help. Um, again, you know, I never got in trouble, James. I never did anything. I asked for help this whole time, you know, thank God. And um, I finally accepted that my drinking at that time in my life took over like my thoughts and, you know, made, you know, my coping mechanism. And I told the job, I said, Hey, listen, now law enforcement, we call it the farm. You know what the farm is? It's just rehab, like an inpatient rehab. I said, I'll go to the farm, but I want to go to my farm. I want to go to 
you know, because I'm not playing games anymore, James. I just I just was in a hospital for six weeks and it didn't do anything. Um, uh, it, it made me a little better, like maybe two percent better. Um, so me and my family, we looked up some good, good rehabs because you know there's a lot of them out there, and some of them can make you worse, and some of them you you could be around an environment with people that are very sick, people that are just not in the same mindset and the same structure as you. You know what I mean? So. I went to High Watch Recovery Center in Kent, Connecticut, and it was the best thing I ever did. And I was there again for another six weeks. Um, actually, a year ago today, man, I was in that rehab. So if you're telling me we're having this conversation or all the things I did after rehab, after High Watch, I would do, I would say you're out of your mind. But it's crazy of what a year can really do if you take it day by day with the right bricks, You know, building the house the right way, not skipping a step, not skipping a brick, not skipping a stone. Just taking it a day at a time, a minute at a time, a rep at a time, a workout at a time. And um, high watch recovery was great. It was – I was in a dorm with 14 guys. Uh, it felt like college again. It was great. We just interacted all the time and we had a structured class. We had to go to class. We had to learn about um, alcoholism. We had to learn about depression. We had to learn about anxiety, PTSD. It was all structured classes. We had a class just designated for – um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, by uh, by uh, 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 Bill and Bob. And uh, you learn a lot. The food was great. It was like a five-star hotel food. So they took real good care of you. Um, and that there is what kind of really destroyed my ego, my drinking, and really make me feel reborn of who I am, of why my higher, higher power or God put me on this planet because if you think about it i always say god or your higher power didn't create alcohol right james it was man-made it's not like you go to the river and you start drinking water holy water or whatever you believe in out of alcohol it's water so alcohol is not meant to be in the human body it's a poison it's not meant to be the in the brain it's a slow suicide so when you start really learning about it you're like wow you know it scared me enough and i knew now that i stopped drinking for six months that how much better my life is, you know, physically and psychologically. So I left High Watch in the end of April of 2019, and I picked up a few times, you know. Your secrets will make you sick. I love that saying. So, you know, I felt a lot better, right? My depression went away. My anxiety went away. Oh, I was on Trintilex and High Watch. So, again, I'm on another medication. Uh, effects are on Trintilex. So can't forget that. So... You know, I started saying, you know, if I, if I, when I did pick up a few times, it was, you know, no one's going to see me. I'm going to do it if I'm on vacation. And, you know, I try to fight it, if, you know, but again, I picked up a few times and I had to admit it because if you admit your slip up, you can talk about it and you can say, why did I slip up to me? I didn't slip up because I was de- depressed or anxious. I just slipped up because I wanted to have a few drinks and, you know, and, and see what happened. Um, so if you don't admit your slip up and then you get into a cycle of drinking and then you get into that cycle of drinking every day, you can relapse. So if you do slip up, don't be shameful. Don't feel guilty. Talk about it. Why did you slip up? And, you know, again, day one all over again of sobriety and you start and you work around it. Um, so admitting your slip up is very powerful and it's very powerful to yourself. So I kept my job. I'm, um, you know, I forgot to tell you back in November of 2018, I went back to the university police department, right? I forgot to say that story that I, I pulled, I pulled the plug. I made the decision to go back. 
But then it was too late when I went back. Everyone's like, oh my God, what happened to you? You look so, you're not the same. You're a different person. And then that's when I ended up going to the hospital and all that stuff. But um, I, you know, back in the Bronx. And then in September, I, you know, I was at a wedding. I didn't do anything stupid. I was having a good time. And then me and my girlfriend got into a little argument and I had the man up. I had the man up and take responsibility. I was like, you know what? Why would I pick up when I just went through this hell, when it didn't help me, it made everything worse. So I decided in September of 2019 to never pick up a drink again yet. And since September, I just hit my six months of sobriety that I have not took one sip of alcohol. And back in October of 2018, I am off all my SSRIs. I'm not on any type of medication. The only pills I'm on is my allergy medication and multivitamin, vitamin C, vitamin B, magnesium, and vitamin D. And that's it. Well, firstly, mate, congratulations. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And with uh, with reference to the to alcohol being good for you, it's funny. I made this this observation years ago when I was younger. If you and I went now to an Indian restaurant and we had the the prawn curry, shrimp curry, and you're like, this kind of smells a little funny, but whatever, you know, we we just go ahead and eat it anyway. And then we're both violently ill. The chances of you and I going back to that restaurant and ordering prawn curry again are, you know, basically zero. Yet two people can go out, get shit faced, feel horrendous the next day, hungover as hell. And if not that night, definitely the next night, they're probably going to be drinking again. That's how dangerous alcohol is. So people don't look at it as addictive as far as like cigarettes and stuff, but you think about what it does when you have too much of it and yet how quickly the body forgets that. It's actually terrifying if you put it that way. Yeah, that's... uh. Now, you made a good point, right? Because have you ever thought of it like this? You go out and you drink and people black out, especially at a young age. And they think it's cool. It's great. You need to put the pieces together. You call your buddies. Now, when someone takes heroin, does heroin and they overdose, oh, that person's a bad person. Don't hang out with them. They're a piece of shit. But you know that alcohol and heroin, they almost act the same way in the brain. So what's the difference, man? between blacking out and overdosing. You know, it's really, is there really a big difference? And I've been studying it and looking. I just know that the brain, it affects the brain in different ways because, you know, obviously the alcohol is, it affects, after two or three drinks, the front of your brain, your thinking part of your brain gets affected. So, you know, it just reacts different in the body. But, what, you know, you ever think about it? Really, what is the big difference? Because if you're blacking out, you could die. You can get in a car accident. You cannot remember. You can wake up somewhere. And it really is, it's a disaster, man. You're, you're, you're close to death when you black out because your brain is clouded and it could shut your body down. Yeah. I had a, a very scary event and it happened almost a year ago now. And the reason I know that is it was at Welcome to Rockville, which is a three-day rock festival we have here in Florida. And my wife just showed me through the, the glass window of my office door that they've canceled it this year because of coronavirus. So it was almost a year to the day. And I'm not a big drinker at all, but I can tell you in detail the few times i've got too drunk and sadly one of them was was in that that event i was out in the sun i don't know if we'd eaten as much as we should have um you know a friend of a friend buys shots for everyone's and i mean i normally I kind of push them away but and uh it just hit me it, it wasn't that much alcohol but that day it was too much for whatever reason and for the first time ever my wife had to basically walk my ass back to the hospital i mean to the hospital to the to the hotel room 
But what was scary, I didn't black out. I had very, very poor recollection of, of elements of the evening. But had someone attacked my family at that point, I would have been completely fucking useless. And that scared the shit out of me. Now, again, I hadn't gone out to get drunk. But it, again, that's another drug that can sneak up on you. Yeah, but that was... I don't give a shit about me if I get hit by a car or whatever. But if my wife and my son had been attacked and I just kind of fell over in a bush somewhere while they're being assaulted, you know, what? I, I pride myself on being a sheepdog. And by that action, I took myself completely out of the fight. Right. And that right there, James, I'm glad... You brought that up and you said that because <laughs> I see a lot of people now. They're not working. They're home. What are they doing? They're drinking. Now, it blows my mind because if someone breaks into your house or does something to your family and you're out there and you're drunk and you're blacked out, not even if you're, you're so drunk, you're, you're not, you're so slow. I mean, it, it just boggles my mind. Someone can come into your house, take everything to beat your family up and leave and you couldn't even do anything. And then you have to live with that. And that can lead to a lot of guilt, shame, depression, and drinking even more. So that's just a thing to be aware of. So I'm glad that you exactly ex- what you brought up because the best self-defense 90% of the time. And Josh Bryan said this from how strong is just not being in that situation, right? Being drunk, walking home from the bar with your family, you know, with your wife, with your friends, anything can happen. Being drunk in the bar, you know what I mean? And your reaction time and everything is just so slow. Yeah. And then the other thing is behind the wheel. Like how many of us have justified why we're okay? You know, and I suppose I have people that have been on the show that have found themselves in prison, you know, and you know, there's so much judgment from society. And, and I'll tell them very honestly, had you caught me at certain times in my life, I would have blown above the alcohol, you know, I, I would have been above the legal limit, or you know, below. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because you now, is it very often? No, was it was it deliberate? No, but it doesn't matter. I could have been that person, you know. So there's there's so much uh, standing on ivory towers, pointing at other people. But again, that's another side of alcohol. And I got to say, now, you know, my wife and I are very strict with Uber. So if we, if there's any chance that we're going to go out and have you know more than a drink then we'll uber there and back because you know 20 bucks each way is is cheap compared to a dui or god forbid you know hurting your family or someone else yep and if you hurt someone else and you hurt your family and you hurt and you're still alive you've got to live with that for the rest of your life and that's trauma and that's depression and that's just not you don't want to you, life is hard as it is, right, James? You, you, you don't want to add that extra stress and those extra chances of making it 10 times worse. And that's what alcohol does. And now that I'm not drinking, I don't have to worry about any of that. All my thoughts are now that if I go out and drink and wake up the next day, oh, what did I say? What did I do? My body shuts down for two or three days. You don't eat as much. You don't work out as hard. Your thoughts are so negative. Now I have all this positive energy where that doesn't even cross my mind anymore. And you can see how many more ideas and experiences and positive you are in your life. Yeah, I just had a, a one month, you know, off alcohol because again, usually, even though it's somewhat frequent, I don't drink a lot. I never drunk a lot. And I think that's probably part of my British heritage where I was, you know, allowed to have a glass of wine when I was like eight. <laughs> you know, so, day, right, right out of the womb. All pretty right, much. Give it, give it <laughs> <laughs> but it keeps it very like normal in a way that it's not frequent. It's kind of like more of a special occasion, but you're not doing keg stands. You know, you don't see that in England, you know, all that kind of bizarre college behavior that we see here. Um, but, but yeah, but I mean, the productivity, no question, the clear mind the next day, 
was awesome, you know? So, and I think that this is what we're going to see with this period right now. We're all locked away is yeah, there's more of a opportunity and a, and a, um, an invisible push to drinking because some people are just like, all right, let's get through this damn thing so I can go back to work rather than saying, which is very hard to do at the moment. Let me see how I can turn this into a, a positive, um, you know, and use this time to be present. But that's easier said than done. It takes, it takes right. effort. It takes, you know, mental, um, fortitude. It takes time. It takes yeah. time. It took me, look, I'm 27 now. It took me years to get to just this mental, content state where I'm happy with myself and I personally feel like I destroyed my ego and you know it can always come back and again I'm sober today but tomorrow is a new day so but just like you said um those just that self-defense that awareness that positive energy um I wouldn't give up anything in the world and that's why I'm not picking up a drink and you've said it before I'm not picking up a, a drink James too multiple for me but for my family for my bloodline it's time for me and people that have it in their bloodline and in their genet- in their genetics to make it, to take a stand, you know, stop that line. You be the person to make the stand and make the difference. Well, you know what, Frank, I'm done with this this alcohol journey of my family. So now, when I have kids, they never have to go through what I went through, what my family went through, and things like that. So that's how people should look at it. Not you know, alcoholism and drugging is one of the most selfish selfish diseases in the world. Well, look at it like that. And make a stand to change your bloodline, change who you are, change your family history. So when you pass away, your children pass away, their children are able to live good and go go for that, you know? Absolutely. Now, in, in Mark's interview, you mentioned about your dad was actually in rehab now. How, how's he doing? Oh, man. That's another story. You, you can't make this stuff up, man. You know, it's crazy what a year, what can go on in a year. Um, he's doing great. Uh, he just hit a hundred days sober. Um, and here's a man that was drinking every day, probably for 40 years, <laughs> close to it. Uh, it took, it was a struggle to get him there, but, uh, he went man. Um, and he went to the same rehab place I went to and I knew he would enjoy it because just the people you're there with at that rehab at high watch recovery center, they're really hardworking people. They're people that go through a hard time. Um, that you get all walks of life there. People that were homeless people that were in jail, but um, you get a lot of stories where they come back and uh, you have a speaker meeting every Saturday night where they come back, they talk about how they were in prison, but now they're owning businesses, they're owning jobs, they're, they're doing things, they're spreading the wisdom, the positive energy, and um, recovery is possible. And I'm just very lucky and blessed, like, hey, my own father, it's weird to say your father follows the fun son's footsteps, but he's sober. And it took it took years, it took hell to get him there. He made that decision um, because he was very close to losing his family. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. So just to highlight and give you a, a pat on the back, you dug your heels in and stopped that cycle. And not only did it stop, the buck stop with you, it, it actually retroactively then bounced back to your dad. And, and then he was able to finally find that that day where he had the strength to to act on, you know, what he, he was obviously fully self-aware of, really, um, but had been running from. So... It's amazing to not only hear your success, but the fact that that was then radiating. And that, that's what I hear so many times from people that have done things like you and then, and then come on these podcasts and tell people is the moment that you become a beacon of hope or you're truly walking the walk. You're not just, you know, being a quote unquote influencer spouting bullshit. You don't actually, you know, do in your own life. Um, but you're truly, truly that person. It's amazing how many people come out of the woodwork saying me too. 
and you've inspired them to take the same path. And it's it's a it's so so amazing to hear that one of those people was your own father. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, man. Um, and that's it's just, it is a blessing because now hopefully my father can become a grandfather. But my dad went through hell because he broke a leg in 2000, in 2003, snapped his tibia and fibia in half in the firehouse. And what do you think happened? Here come the painkillers, the Vicodins, the Percocets. Then he had a journey now for about 18 years of, of pain pill battle with alcohol. And that's like a gun and a knife going in your chest. Which one is going to stab you? Which one's going to go off first? You know what I mean? Um, and then in 2015, or 16, he got his foot run over by a big wood chipper truck. So he snapped his ankle, his other ankle at 32 pieces, man. So it was, it wasn't easy. It was tough. Uh, and then 2016, he had kidney failure. And then recently, this November of 2019, he had kidney failure and he was, he was, he was uh, diagnosed with alcohol acidosis. I don't know if you ever heard of that term before. I never did until he got diagnosed with it. But basically your body and your organs, man, they're shutting down because the alcohol already has done so much damage over time and the painkillers and you know, you, you get that, right? So anyone who's sober and they get something like that, any type of disease or they would be like, wow, I need to make a life change. But for him, three days later, he was drinking. So you can see there's a difference between the mental addiction and the physical addiction, Greg, you know, they say after 90 days, most people are cleared from the mental obsession of alcohol and it gives you a better chance to survive in your recovery. Now, it's crazy statistics because I've done so much research on this because it affected me, my family, my life. 90% of people will relapse within the first four years of trying to get sober. Um, so, you know, you need to be aware of that. Uh, you need to uh, – 3.5 people, it takes them – to get it right in the first 90 days, Greg, it takes them 3.5 rehabs. So now imagine a family that sends a loved one to rehab and they don't get it right one time, then two times. They're like, man – Maybe there is no hope for this person. Maybe there is no, maybe there isn't, but you got to have that little faith. Say, you know what? It's been done before. People have beaten alcoholism before. People have beaten depression before. So there is a cure, you know? And that's, that's the thing. My dad, my dad did 90 and 90. 90 and 90 is 90 meetings in 90 days, not miss a day, no matter what. And it helped him. And he has a sponsor, uh, like I do. And, um, now, when I visited Mark, right, we went to a meeting every day, man, in California, Sacramento. And those meetings are great because you're all you're across the country and you're sharing. You hear stories that you can relate to. And they're across the country of people you never met that you might not ever meet again. And it was great. But, you know, and him in his early recovery, because he he was maybe 50 or 60 days clean. Then we had to go. You know, there was no option. And uh, we took it serious and we went and we had a great time in those meetings. And we met some really, really good people. But, um, you know, you have to restructure your life because now think about it, right? You're drank every day for 40 years. You're so used to that, man. That's half your life. You need to kind of learn and cope without it and kind of – it's like a, a kid again. You got to learn how to live life without the drug of your choice that you've been using every single day. Yeah. I think a very important point just to add to that that I heard you say in the interview with Mark as well is – when you when you do fall off the wagon, and I mean that like temporarily, and this this applies not just to to addiction, but or maybe maybe it is addiction. That's the point, but not just the the world of alcohol, but it can be you know opiate use, it can be food, it can be whatever. 
um, missing the gym for a day and you're supposed to go is that was it. That was just a day or two days or four days or whatever you missed. But you have two choices. You can go into like, you know, morning mode where you're like, well, I fucking ruined everything. So, well, then what's the point? Or the other way, like, yeah, okay, so I screwed up. And and you own it and then you get back onto whatever it is. And it, yes, it may have reset the little virtual counter, but you're only four days back now versus if you give up completely. Four days is nothing. You can catch that up. You know, you, you can move forward. But if you turn any minute failure, any moment of weakness into, well, that's it then, throwing your arms up, you're totally missing missing an opportunity to say, yeah, I fucked up. All right, all right, back on it again now. Yeah, 100%, uh, definitely, because, look, I had a year and a half of this struggling battle, right? A year and a half, and I could have, I don't want people to make it a year and a half, you know? So, you, again, what, if you are in a bad way, depression-wise, and you feel like you're in that hole, and you're, and you're lonely, and you're stuck in this box, and you can't open up the box, but literally, all you have to do is stick your arm up, and the box will open, right? Um, and get the right help, and or surround yourself with that right people. See, I was very blessed and lucky to have good family, to have a good friends and a support group where people out there don't have that. So that's where I hope that people realize that you do become a product of your environment and you are, you are able, everyone has a choice, right? Everyone, every choice you have is a consequence, good or bad. So you have a choice to surround yourself with people that are gonna help you. And if you're struggling with addiction or you're struggling with anything, like you said, working out, that's an addiction. Running, you get a high. You get your, your endorphins, your dopamine. That's what's happening. It's released. But it's a positive addiction. Anything is an addiction. Video games, reading, painting, podcasting, liking on Instagram, have to throw up all these pictures on Instagram, man. It, it's a, it's a, that's another world in itself. So you need to be, like they say, you know, mindful of what you're feeding you know that quote the wolf you're feeding you know that that's that's a that's a very true quote um and and it's a great quote just to be aware and that takes that's not even easy to be mentally aware of what you're doing every day your habits your behavior because it goes a long way so i'm glad that you you brought that up yeah and i I heard you touch on this too that's that's a uh an addiction that i think a lot of us don't see as an addiction which is cell phone use it can be you posting or it can you just scrolling like you said and liking but i see so much narcissism on social media in in general like my feed is obviously the things i'm really interested in so i see firemen and you know weightlifting and martial arts so it's a pretty pretty non-narcissistic arena in general yeah but when you go to the the regular feed it's heartbreaking because you know like you said these people what they're really looking for is is human connection, is is self value, and that manifests into let me put on skimpy clothes and take a picture of you know of myself, or, or let me try and be a clown for you and make you laugh and you know prank people in a store or make fun of a homeless person, you know whatever it is. And it's like we need to look at that side too because I know a lot of the child psychology people have had on, you know, they're saying this is really contributing to to ill health in the younger generation but i see it all the way up through you know obviously to the to the ages where they're not really aware of it but it is it is the addiction that i don't think people call addiction oh i mean i think social media is more negative than positive it depends again what you're doing but for the the millennial age that's coming up that that this like uh this age bracket um they are, it's like the first time in almost any generation, basically, that they're, they're dying before their parents. Um, 
And depression, anxiety, suicide, fentanyl, heroin use is off the charts, man. The average age now for a human in the United States um, is 71 years old. It just went down the average age to live. So, you know, social media has such a big part because you humans don't want to feel lonely, right? We weren't made to live in our own house, again, like we're seeing now, for our whole life. We were made to grow, to learn from other people, to find a significant other, um, if you're whatever you're into, male, female, and to grow and to love, you know? So we're not, loneliness causes depression. So when you're lonely and you're posting all this stuff on social media, it's because you want, you want to feel wanted. You want to feel like you're doing something. You want to feel like you're part of something. And everyone wants to feel like they're part of something. And that's what happens also in the streets of New York, in LA, Chicago, big cities, when young kids, they join gangs, right? They might not have, people need to look at, well, he's a gang member, he's a POS. Well, let's look at his childhood. Did he have a mother? Did he have a father? Was he playing sports? They join these gangs because they want to feel wanted. They want to feel a part of something. They want to feel like they have a meaning in their life, you know? So that's just another psychological chat we could have as well. But that's what it is. It's really feeling wanted. And, you know, even when I was in high school, Facebook just came out. So you really had to interact with people. There was no Snapchat. Maybe there was MySpace. That was it. And again, MySpace was blown up left the right people posting crazy things and things like that but it's really all about feeling wanted you know um so that's you need to really be aware of what you post and if you're a parent of what your children are posting because it can send a subliminal message to you as a parent wow maybe my child is feeling down or feeling something that i'm not aware of you know what i mean oh absolutely absolutely well that's a great segue to the gym so obviously sadly right now all social spaces have been closed down. Like I said, I just got word that the rock concert in May is. I know my gym that I, CrossFit gym, I normally coach and train at um, is closed down and you know, it's affecting you as well. But that aside, tell me about what made you start a gym and um, you know who you're trying to target as far as bringing in through the doors. Uh, well, obviously with my story and after my dad got sober um, – I was like, you know, this is possible and working out and lifting, you know, Mark Bell, the, the lift through it that he talks about lifting has really got me where I am. I really couldn't tell you, man, obviously my parents did a great job. My, my friends I surrounded myself with, I got lucky that I chose the right friends. Um, lifting has been there for me when no one else was or nothing, you know, when I was down. So lifting as I lift because it makes me, you know, of course, everyone wants to lift to look good, you know, but James, lifting has increased my mental toughness and awareness uh, better than any drug, better than anything in the world. There's no better high than hitting like a deadlift PR or a PR in the gym, in my opinion. So, and it brings together a community uh, to work with people, especially as first responders. So back in September, I was thinking like, wow, you know, I just got myself really good. Right now, I can admit that I am this, this is definitely, and I'm, I'm a, I'm not, I'm average in the gym. You know, I'm not super strong. I'm not weak. I'm an average lifter. And I said, you know, this, this can, I could, I'm trying to do something where we could build a community, especially with the police suicide rate of 228 last year. We're already up to 45 police suicides this year. Um, the average age of a police officer is 57. And that's what almost six, uh, 14 years lower than the average age of a, of a non- first response uh, police officer so 
everyone is talking about the police suicides. NYPD had 10 last year. We, uh, two that were two, uh, 12, if you count the guys that were retired. We have three this year, two on the job, one retired last year. Uh, I mean, just two weeks ago, a poor um, female officer shot herself in the locker room. Man. And that stuff breaks my heart because, you know, I got through what I got through because it, it was possible. So I said, you know what? I need, I want to create something where I can see other people grow and I can see, you know, I don't want to hear Frank, you're doing a great job and stuff like that. I want someone to say, thank you, Frank. You know, you saved my life. And now that my life is saved, um, I'm able to save someone else's life, you know, James. So it's going to be able to trickle down like an umbrella effect. So I, you know, thought of this idea, rep for responders, um, and I reached out to my girlfriend and she said, oh, that's a great idea. Have you heard of Rep for Recovery? I said, no. Um, I talked to them a little bit. Another gym in Nevada, upstate Nevada, uh, uh, Greg, he's a great guy. He never met me. He talked to me on the phone for 30 minutes. We became, you know, we started getting in contact when I visited Mark in California. I drove to Reno. We met with them and the whole gym and the whole atmosphere. And um, basically, I've, you know, I'm a police officer, but I'm also a human being, James. You know, I, I don't go home and, and recharge like the Terminator and I'm ready to go. You know, we have family disputes. First responders have car accidents, family disputes, issues like you just heard. Um, so I'm also in recovery. So I also see people in meetings that aren't first responders that went through a hard time that have been homeless that, you know, just all different walks of life. So I said, okay, Red for Responders, a nonprofit gym. Um, open gym free for first responders, military, corrections, police, firemen, EMS, EMT, uh, open gym for free. And then, you know, other people that are not first responders can use the gym as well. Um, and then they would just have to, you know, give a little donation and we'll have some conditioning classes. And I met, as I mentioned before, my partner is a black belt in jiu-jitsu for 35 years. He's been training for jiu-jitsu. So we wanted to have tactical classes, uh, some, some uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes here. But the most important part was to have the open meeting, first responder meeting, where you come in and you have a conversation like this. And, you know, you maybe you just need, maybe you set one talk, James, that, that might make you change that one thought that's going to turn into two thoughts, that's going to turn into three thoughts, that's going to be positive. Or maybe you really are suffering like some of the cops are out there and they don't know where to go to. Because, you know, a lot of the people aren't going to the job to ask for help because, again, the stigma get in your gun, getting your shield taken away. That's like getting your, excuse my French, as a male, you get your, your balls taken away. So you, they, 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 first responders and military, they only want to talk to their own basically because they, we, we get it. You know, it's like, imagine talking to a dentist or a librarian or a teacher about what you go through. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you can't relate. So it's like anything in any job, any career, any walk of life, you want to, you want to lean towards people that have almost walked the same path as you, not the same path, but very similar. So that's what the whole idea is, is a nonprofit for first responders to not only get themselves physically. I, I want this place to be like a church, you know, a safe haven. Hey, you call me at two in the morning, you, you DM me or email me. And I say, you know, I'm really thinking about killing myself or quitting the job or just, you know, getting a divorce or just, you know, there's no way out. I'm done. That's why I'm here because you don't need to do that. And just because they have suicidal thoughts for a month or two doesn't mean they're broken. You know what I mean? Like, look at me, a year and a half of hell, 
And now I'm, I'm the strongest I've ever been in my life. And I just take it a day at a time. And I'm learning new things. I'm meeting new people. I've just learned so many things from you on this podcast and listening to your podcast, you know, so recovery is possible. And that's what I'm trying to, trying to change, you know, and it was just a bad time with this Corona and, you know, also to get the community involved. I don't have a big space, but other gyms, other, um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms, other dojos, other things like that. Hey, I got some first responders that want to come in. Can you maybe give them a little better price and let them join? So I'm not trying to make competition with gyms around me. I'm trying to get, you know, community awareness to be like, hey, we need to help our first responders out a little bit. Because to me, a first responder, our brain is like a computer, right? Whatever we think we delete, it can come back up like a pop-up. It can come back up at any time of your life and you have no control because the brain is so powerful, you know. Your subconscious, the unconscious, and your conscious brain, you know, subconscious and unconscious, same thing. Um, so it's like, try to be aware, you know, to me, I'm training because I'm trying to train my mind. I think the working out and the eating clean is so positive because it helps me cope with the job and now it controls basic depression and anxiety, you know. Since my little incident, I have, I'm, I can admit that I have not had one ounce of depression. And I barely have any anxiety, you know, a little anxiety over the Corona thing with my gym, what's going to happen. But, you know, everyday life, everyday bullshit walks of life. I'm not really worried about the things that I cannot control, you know, James. And that's the thing that working out has helped me control what Frank can control, not what anyone else can control, you know. And when things happen, then you deal with it when it happens because anxiety is when you think about things in the future. And then those thoughts can really just go crazy. Like, you know, you, you shoot a shotgun and a bunch of rounds come out. You don't know where those rounds are going. And that's how I think of it. Like they can go anywhere at any time. So this gym is going to be a safe haven for all first responders. And Hey, first responders, we don't pick the calls we go to, right? We don't say, you know what? Eh, I'm not going to go to this call or I'm going to get there and eh, I'm not really going to help anybody. If anyone comes to the gym and they are really struggling with depression, alcoholism, I'm going to sit down with them and talk to them. Why James? Because I've been there. I see what it does to people. I see it ruins families. 50% of marriages fail. And I guarantee you a lot of, a lot of statistics why they fail. Alcohol, drug is involved. Emotional abuse, physical abuse is involved. So there's no, life is already hard. Like I told you, and I don't want to make it harder. I don't want people to, to make the same mistakes that I made now that I'm aware of what I did. So I can help those people make sure they don't have to go to the hospital for six weeks. Maybe they don't have to go to the farm for six weeks. You can avoid that DWI. You can avoid drinking at your house, a 12 pack, your wife comes home and now it's a freaking all out, you know, battle. And then you're heated. Just imagine how heated you get after one family, one dispute with your wife. And then you've got to go to work in three hours and you might, you don't know, you might get three or four family disputes in a row. And one of them, there might be a knife involved. So, you know, it's very, it, it, that's how you really got to look at it, you know? So that's why I'm hoping that this program does pull through now because we were only open for like what six days and um we're getting a lot of good feedback you know in the community and from i had cops reach out to me from arizona from nebraska from wisconsin and i'm all the way in new york and they thank me and that's that's what it's all about you know i want people that are from california florida pennsylvania connecticut wherever if they're visiting new york hey reach out to us come check out the gym and maybe there's some things you want to talk about because you might not feel comfortable Example, you come to the gym and you're a cop in Queens, you might not feel comfortable telling the cops at your precinct what, what's going on with you, but you might meet a cop in the Bronx or Manhattan. You might meet a fireman in the Bronx. 
that you feel comfortable with. And here you are. Now you're in French with someone. You're French with another first responder. You're getting coffee before, after the gym. Maybe you're, you're, you know, you're getting breakfast or something. You know what I mean? So that's the kind of community that I'm trying to achieve to build. And it's one day at a time. You know, I'm not looking to make, make money here at all. I'm looking to build a family of, uh, faith, you know, one day at a time. Yeah, and I think it's just it's such a great combination of two factors that I've heard over and over and over again are so healing, which is physical health, you know, obviously, you know, fitness and then community. And and I agree completely with what you said as well about the buy-in from the tactical, you know, professions, whether it's police, fire, EMS, you know, even dispatch, you know, corrections, we all do things that basically most of the rest of the population, obviously militaries in that that group as well, most of the other population just don't understand. And it's no disrespect to them, whatever. I wouldn't be able to converse with, you know, a, a rocket physicist. I'd have I'd be completely lost, you know. So it goes up into space. That sounds good, <laughs> you know. But um, but with what we do, and it's not all about the horrific calls. It's just it's the shifts. It's the the effect on our relationships is being away for 24 hours, whatever it is. So, yeah, I think it's such a great combination of all of those. So you obviously, the doors are closed right now. When everything is back up or even in the interim, um, where can they find the gym? And also, how can people help towards you know keeping the doors open? Oh, well, I really appreciate that. We're in Rockland County, New York, uh, New City. It's 20 South Main Street, New City, New York, 10956. Again, we're about 40 minutes right outside the city. We're 20 minutes from Westchester County, New York, 20 minutes from 30 minutes from Orange County, New York. Um, you know, our Instagram is reps underscore four underscore responders. So don't be afraid to DM us if you have any issues. Um, our email is reps for responders at gmail.com. And we have a GoFundMe, uh, the non, the, the, the GoFundMe charity page, you know, rep for responders. And we also have a PayPal rep for responders. Um, that's, that would be a huge help. Um, and you know, what I'm doing the past few days is I've done a few Instagram lives. I did a great Instagram live yesterday with the trauma specialist, uh, addiction, uh, an addiction specialist. Uh, we talked for about 50 minutes. Um, and he's been, he's been in, uh, the psychology, the psychology world for about 30 to 40, you know, since he's been practicing since 1980. So I'm trying to at least spread the wisdom and the knowledge of that. Um, so, and, and go from there. So that's really what, where you can find us. Excellent. Do you guys have an actual website at the moment? Uh, no. Um, we, uh, we're working on that right now, but we just have the Instagram and we have the GoFundMe and we have a YouTube channel, Refs for Responders. Okay. So I'll put the, um, the GoFundMe link on the webpage that goes with this, this, uh, episode of the podcast will be at jamesgearing.com. So for anyone that wants the GoFundMe link, it will be on there too. Um, all right. So the closing questions. First one I love to ask people, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, actually, there is. There's a book sitting in front of me. And, you know, I told you about the support groups we're going to have. It's going to be a topic meeting, a speaker meeting and a book meeting. And the book that I think everyone should read if you're in law enforcement, if you're not, if you're a first responder, if you're a family of law enforcement, it's called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, A Guide for Officers and Their Families. And it's by Kevin M. Gilmartin. He's a PhD. And that book I read straight, three hours, three hours straight, 150 pages. And it was, it related to me so, so well. You know, his, his book comes up over and over again. I need to reach out to him to get him on the podcast too. Yeah, that, that would be great. But besides his book, uh, Five People You Meet in Heaven, that's just a great life story book in general. So I recommend that to everybody. <laughs> Brilliant. In heaven. Awesome. 
Um, what about a movie? Is there a movie you love? Oh, there's so many, man. You know, like I talked about before, The Departed, Bronx Tale, Goodfellas. Um, I mean, I guess we went over The Departed because it it uh, it hit me. It really related to me. Um, but if I had to think of another movie, uh, I don't know, man. I, I like Mark Wahlberg, his movies. I like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, maybe The Great Gatsby. That's always a good one, you know, back, you know, it's a little love story of, of what he sacrificed of such a great, great, uh, he had a great job i guess i mean it was illegal but uh what happened for <laughs> love but yeah i like i like both of those actors so you can go a long way you know i can go on and on about movies so yeah <laughs> yeah brilliant well then what about uh, a documentary any of those that you love i guess i want to say this is a documentary but on netflix um mind hunters it's the, the have you ever heard of mind hunters i have the serial killer um psychology oh team. man it was great. It was so good. Um, and I and I recommend everyone, though, especially if you're in the psychology and how people act, you want to see why people act the way they do. They make great points and they're very close. If you look up David Berkowitz, if you look up the BTK killer, if you look up what happened down in Atlanta, they really hit it on the point. So that's great. Um, a few documentaries I watched recently, I guess everyone's probably watched them, right? Like Don't Fuck With Cats and the Aaron Hernandez one. Yes. But those are the ones that come to my head. You want to talk about psychological Don't Fuck With Cats? That one it will blow your mind. And that <laughs> one will really, really go into the mind of someone that, uh, you know, and look about it. Look where he came from. He was the way he grew up. Uh, he was abused and everything. So you got to look around why these people act the way they do. It's something has happened to them in their life and they – Again, maybe they weren't able to share what their experience were going through. Imagine if he had a friend he could share his experience with. Maybe he doesn't become that person. You know what I mean? Oh, completely. Absolutely. I mean, I've had people, like I said, that have been in, in prison that are – actually, my next episode is Michael Lopez. He kind of went – I guess his story went viral on social media a few months ago. But he was uh, um, you know, a gangbanger and uh, you know, a, a, a multiple felon. And now he is – an advocate for getting people out of a Baker Act, you know, a, a, a mandatory psychiatric hold, you know, people that get thrown in there that, that don't really have any business oh, being there. And then right. he also yeah. feeds the homeless on Skid Row, you know, so the, the number of people that have been through some really nasty shit, some of which took some really bad life decisions for a while. And I can't agree with you anymore. And, and the, the analogy or the, the, um, kind of mental image I try and get people to look at is imagine a preschool. All those kids, all different skin colors, one, you know, some may potentially be gay or lesbian or whatever, and they're all just running around giggling, chasing balls and, you know, going down the slide. And, and that's it. That's what we start off as. We don't sit there as three years old going, one day I'm going to be slinging dope and gangbanging. That's my goal. No, you're a fucking toddler. You know what I mean? So, right. yes, there are some people that have these chemical imbalances that really do steer their their mind somewhere i think we see that with pedophiles and you know some of these complete sociopaths but that's a minute that's that's like the point well think about it not everyone's a serial killer that's very rare exactly on the point because again it's you need to look at it like this people need to look at it the the household they grew up in and so it's so important from a parent um parent wise and then the product of your environment who are you hanging out with at school what life choices are you making? Because again, it's all about responsibility. And I give the the man you just mentioned a lot of credit and people in recovery that a lot of credit is that they're taking, they're taking responsibility, you know, James, and they're using it for positive instead of negative. And, um, I think the toughest and the most the strongest people are those type of people that are in recovery because, you know, they have the life experience and then they turn it around. Yeah. 
And I think for everyone that's doing well, you need to stop looking at people as they're an addict, they're a whore, they're a bum, and ask the question, what happened? How can I help? Because these were all these toddlers once. Something happened along the way. So we need to stop being, you know, using prejudice as far as addiction and, you know, homelessness and, and, and things like that and taking these people out of these dark places and back into, you know, the, the amazing lives that we all enjoy. Oh, amen, brother, because you just hit it on the point real quick again. Samuel L. Jackson, Tom Hardy, I'm naming actors that said that they admitted they were crackheads and they had no hope um, until they got better. And now they're one of the best actors. They're, they're top actors in the game. You know, look at Eminem. Look at Demi Lovato. Look at um, Bradley Cooper. I mean, I can go on and on. The people that gave up the drug and alcohol to become the best that they can be. Elton John. I can make a list. I have like 30 people off the top of my head, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, speaking of people, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to our community? Um, more for law, does it, is it involving law enforcement? No, anything, or? like literally anyone on planet Earth. Oh, well, if I could meet and talk to one person, it would be Tim Tebow. But for you, if I knew someone in particular, uh, you know, the Instagram page, like the resiliency program. Uh, yes. Yeah. The best, we, we just spoke the other day. Right. Yeah. Um, now, did you just shoot a podcast with him? No, just talk to him? no, we just chatted. I, I think it's the same gentleman. I'm, I'm blanking on his name now and I apologize yeah, if Nick. you're listening. Nick. Yeah, Nick. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he has a great, beautiful story. And now he's kind of, he's doing something with his life and he's changing, trying to change the game. And I guess, I guess you could say what I'm trying to change, but, uh, his story is very powerful and he's, uh, again, he went through hell and back and now he's doing what he needs to do, not for himself, but for his fellow community of law enforcement and first responders because, again, he lived it. And now, look, he's here. He's living, he's breathing, and that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's what matters is that you're here, you're living, you're breathing, and then you're using that positive energy and thinking to help others. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you for that. All right, so then the last thing before we just recap where people can find you, what do you do to decompress? Oh, uh, should I just say weightlifting or something else you mean? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, I mean, to say obviously, I, I assumed weightlifting was one of them. And if that's if that's the main thing, then that's, that's the answer. Perfect. But is there anything else in addition to that? Yeah. Um, you know what? It's like kind of cliche or easy, but, you know, I love falling asleep. It sounds kind of weird, but I fall asleep a lot at night to TED Talks. Um, and that helps me decompress. Finding shows and learning about different things help me decompress. Like you said, you had Stan Efforting on the show. Watch his watch. Like try to try to take if you're stuck somewhere and I'm talking about not physically, mentally, just look at your feet. Uh, go for a walk like we talked about. Go outside and it doesn't have to be anything crazy. 10, 15 minute walk, 20 minute walk and put in a podcast, put in a video, put in something that you enjoy listening to that's going to help your brain and focus you on your breathing, focus you in that moment. So definitely, I I definitely enjoy that, man. Just getting out of that stuck situation mentally and try to become more aware physically and any type of physical activity and just like a walk and listening to something positive, you know, great. It could be music. It could be something that's going to change where you are mentally into bringing you into the now. Fantastic. All right. And then just to highlight, so the main, the main social media platform is at reps underscore for underscore responders. Yep, that's the that's the Instagram, the G, our, our email, it's the same thing, responders no underscores at gmail.com, YouTube, ref for responders, 
non, uh, GoFundMe, charity, breast for responders. It's all that stuff. And we're working on a website that should be up within two weeks, you know? Beautiful. All right. Well, Frank, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation. I know it was funny that you did Mark's podcast and then Chris had spoken to you about reaching out to me. And then we had a conversation. Obviously, you know, your story is, is very powerful and I'm, I'm really glad that we got to talk. And despite this crazy, uh, you know, virus that's going around at the moment, it is giving people an opportunity to be present and, and a good sidebar is enabling enabling me to to do more podcasts so thank you for you know taking the time to tell your story and and, and being courageous enough to tell your story too because that's very important uh thanks james I, I appreciate it man um thank you for doing what you do i mean again it takes a lot of a lot of stones and a lot of uh you know willpower to do what you do so i appreciate you man more than uh more than you know and just listening to your podcast and trying to make this world a better place is we need people like you out there and again don't when you're ready you can't force someone to tell you to share your story but when you're ready i encourage people to share it because you don't know if you change one person you've already done your job so you know thank you for everything you do and uh keep pushing and it's one step at a time man as long as you don't get stuck in your own head like i did and you're, you're moving an inch an inch is better than not moving at all so thank you james 